Mark Crispin Miller holds a special place in my heart as the first prominent leftist I saw speaking out against the draconian lockdowns, mask wearing, and ultimately the vaccine craze that took over our society in vast portions of the world. As most prominent leftists were selling out avidly, Professor Miller stayed true to his core values and avoided the perilous trap of contradicting his life's work. While Noam Chomsky, author of Manufacturing Consent, despite his brilliance, failed to comprehend that the greatest manufacturing of consent in history was occurring, and likewise, Naomi Klein, author of the seminal text The Shock Doctrine, failed to identify the greatest shock doctrine event in history, the training of Professor Miller did not fail him. Despite the chaos of what was going on, he remained astute and razor sharp. It is with great honor and great pleasure that I welcome Professor Mark Crispin Miller to the baseline. Welcome to the baseline, Professor Miller. How are you? <laughs> you hear that noise in the background? Uh oh, is that the is that Big Brother? No, no, uh, working in the apartment next door. Just started as soon as he entered this Oh my goodness. That's bad. Uh, I think it might have been sent by the CIA. Are you sure that's not a... <laughs> I'm walking down the hall to see if I can get them to stop for an hour. Okay, thank you so much. So yeah, let's... Uh, just talk for a minute. Mark Crispin Miller is trying to sort things out over there. That's how real this program is, guys, by the way. So this is live radio, and that's one thing I love about it. It's like being on a high wire a little bit. Um, you never know what you're going to get. But um, we hey, have... Um, listen, is it possible to stop doing that? Okay, yeah. So we're, we're muting Mark Crispin Miller as he addresses that. And uh, I just want to say, yeah, Mark Crispin Miller is so much fun to have as a guest. I hope we can really do this without that ridiculous noise in the background because, uh, you know, I come from more of a social theory sort of historical perspective. I'm completely out of my element talking to di doctors and scientists and even lawyers that we've had on this show. I, I'm so fond of all of our guests and all the various experts, but I've ventured way out there getting into that kind of conversation just based on the exigencies of our movement. But when we talk social theory, now that's my wheelhouse a little bit more. I've, I've done more reading and thinking in that respect. So to have Professor Miller as a guest, well, you know, that's a conversation that um, I could enjoy uh, to no end. So how are you today, Professor Miller? Do we think uh, that we can pull this I'm, off? I'm, I'm better now that I, I think I got them to to ease up to lay their, to lay their work um you know gutting the apartment next door right so let's let's talk while we can hear each other excellent well i'm so glad you're making this happen i'm, I'm really thrilled about this this is a dream come true for me because i have to tell you just personally professor miller when the world was being dumped on its head with the uh covid um what do you want to even call it at this point the covid psyop the covid agenda all the mm -hmm. things that we were subjected to, I was like, what's going on? I mean, my, my friends who were my activist friends, the people I knew to resist such things, were just falling completely in line with it and yeah. uh, excoriating anyone who was not falling in line. And to hear your speech, I think it might have been filmed in Union Square. I unfortunately wasn't there. But shortly mm -hmm. after you delivered a speech early on, 
I was like, okay, I'm not crazy. There's at least one other person who's uh, in the twilight zone, but with my understanding of what's happening, that we, we have at least, you know, we've entered a twilight zone and there's more than one person who sees it, not just me. So it, it was quite uh, liberating to hear that speech. And now here we are a few years into the medical freedom movement. And I have to say quickly before we start, Professor, um, as someone who spent a lot of time on the left and going to left conferences, working with left organizations, et cetera, et cetera, um, I've found people in the medical freedom movement to be more accessible, to be more sort of left than leftists ever were in a lot of respects in terms of cooperating and being yeah. accessible. I don't know if you've yeah. noticed that or experienced that in, in any way. Uh, yeah, I, I had the same experience. I mean, um, you know, you introduced me as coming from the left, and that's, that's accurate. Um, but I've been thinking about this lately. I mean, it, it's, it, to my mind, being on the left has, has always meant primarily being anti-war. Agreed. Uh, you know, um, pro-integration. Uh, you know, racial integration. Right. Hostile to censorship. Right. Distrustful of corporate power. And, right. um, you know, uh, well, well informed on the dark history of our intelligence agencies. Right. Opposed to empire and so on. Check, 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 check. All right, down. Yeah. Down. All of those so, boxes. I mean, I've tried to be true to all, to all those values. Um, but I've been, you know, rereading my first book, uh, Boxed In, The Culture of TV, which came out in 1988. It was a collection of my writings on the media. And I, I was struck by how uh, anomalous a figure I was on the left even then. And, and, I mean, this could just be my imagination, but my sense is that all the time I was on the left, uh, writing for the nation and so on, I, I always felt um, a certain tension hmm. between me and a lot of people in that, I, I hate to use the word community, but, um, you know, I, I didn't really feel quite at home there. Hmm. I can relate uh, to that. Yeah. There, there was, you know, I, I, I went from, you know, uh, critical writing into activism in the 90s when I became aware of uh, the accelerating uh, corporate concentration of the media. Hmm. And I, I started writing uh, articles about that problem, the threat it posed and poses, you know, to democracy. I, uh, you know, lobbied certain figures in the Department of Justice, you know, where they're responsible for antitrust operations. Hmm. Uh, I tried my best with a few friends, very few friends, to uh, delay one of those huge mergers back in the 90s, media mergers. Right. And um, even though I was asked to edit a series of special issues of the nation, uh, series called The National Entertainment State, which I thought was a great idea. I was asked to guest edit 
it turned out to be four issues of the magazine, each one devoted to a different culture industry and including a fold-out chart, a glossy chart, to, sh- to demonstrate visually how much power, you know, particular corporate entities wielded in the media. Mm-hmm. We did one on TV news you know, to show what ultimately owned the network news divisions. We did one on book publishing. Uh, we did one on rock music, and I think we did one on on the movie business. Mm, fascinating. Well, even though I was asked to do that, I got a lot of pushback from others on the left hmm. who thought that, um, I don't know, the problem was exaggerated or wasn't that big a deal. You know, in some cases, it was surprising, you know, to hear from uh, to hear that kind of thing from staunch armchair Marxist revolutionaries, yeah, you know, and 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 it it only worsened when I moved from media concentration, which you know poses a, has posed is posing an existential threat to American democracy. I moved from that to election fraud having discovered what, you know, um, how our elections work or don't work. Yeah. And there the, the animus became much more noticeable, hmm. you know. Um, if you question the outcome of an election or of elections generally, you're, you're forced away from taking a tribal approach to politics. Right. You know, my party, right or wrong. Right. Uh, the biggest disappointment to me along those lines is that after the 2020 election, we clearly had, I say we, I'm, I'm referring to a small election integrity movement started up around 2000 and with which I was very active back then. I wrote fooled again about the theft of the 2004 election. Mm. Uh, and edited a book called Loser, Loser Take All. Right, I love that title. Yeah. And um, uh, I, you know, um, this, to call this disappointing is an understatement. I mean, after the 2020 election, despite the ceaseless propaganda claiming there was no evidence of theft, there was and is abundant evidence of theft and very, very precise. And a lot of it's coming out of various state investigations that don't get any press at all. Right. Because it's become, uh, you know, it's heresy to suggest that elections can be stolen. Right. Now, back when I was working with that movement, we were focused naturally on Republican efforts, successful Republican efforts to steal elections from Democrats. Mm. Oddly, the Democrats themselves gave us a very cool reception. They were completely uninterested in, you know, helping us or consulting us. They didn't want to know. And, I, and I, you know, for a more recent example of the kind of thing I'm describing, just think of Bernie Sanders. Right, I was going to say. Twice was, you know, robbed, or I should say his voters were robbed of his primary victory. Right. Twice. Yeah, with a lot of anomalies connected to it. Yeah. 
and he didn't want to hear about it. He right. didn't want to know. He so went that, quietly that into the night, as we say. <laughs> yeah. So the Democrats didn't want to get involved, and the media was just as dismissive then as they are now, except that, except that the um, propaganda against election integrity activists was uh, more in a spirit of ridicule than of um, fear-mongering. In other words, um, you know, back then, uh, you were, back then you were a crank. You were, you were wearing a tinfoil hat if you dared point to any evidence that Bush Cheney didn't really win. Mm-hmm. And we were all called conspiracy theorists, you know, uh, naturally. Uh, now, this started happening in the middle of the last decade, around 2014. Now, um, it, it is actually a matter of um, sedition. You know, it's, it's terrorism. Right. Question the outcome of an election is um, practically a criminal offense, and it probably will be a criminal offense. I mean, we're moving in that direction. So that, you know, January 6th was all about that. Those people had every right to go to Washington and protest and demand that the Supreme Court, you know, adjudicate the question, you know, actually look into the evidence of death, which they never did. Right. No court has ever. Yeah. So... You know, the civic tragedy I'm, I'm talking around is that all, almost all my old allies in the election integrity movement in 2000, 2004, 2006, nearly all of them are now basically in the business of laughing off evidence of theft because they hate Trump, right. you know, because they're Democrats. Now, I always insisted when I was interviewed, like I was interviewed by Bill O'Reilly, you know. I mean, Fox would have me on. Uh, and I almost got a word in edgewise with him. Hmm. And um, I was always able to say, you know, with a clear conscience, I, my interest in this is not partisan. I'm not a Democrat. I hadn't voted Democratic since 1992. Yeah. I was a Nader voter, you know. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So um, I, I was never a partisan player, but I'm afraid most of the others who are still out there now, it's all about the DNC. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and the tragedy there is that we could, have, we could have expanded the election integrity movement exponentially if we had respected and listened to some of the investigators into the 2020 election, you know? Yeah. Uh, but they were, you know, they were not able to transcend their tribal loyalty. And the movement now is even more taboo than it was then, you know. Yeah. So you're like an anti-vaxxer if you are what they call an election denier. Right. You know? exactly. Nobody's denying an election. Yeah. They're denying that the outcome was legitimate. Yeah. And, you know, I think any candidate who has some grounds for doubting the legitimacy of, of the outcome. Any, any candidate has every right and indeed has an obligation 
to insist that that evidence be be um, studied carefully, taken seriously. I can't think of anything more important than that in a you know in an electoral democracy. But you know uh, that when I when I wrote uh, Fooled Again in two thousand came out in two thousand five about the two thousand four election. That's when I realized that the left had no use for me. Hmm. I was what, what date I, was that that you said? Uh, the book came out in 2005. Okay. And that's when, you know, I was, up until then, you know, a fairly frequent contributor to the New York Times op-ed page. I guess I wrote about five pieces for them. Right. I was often on NPR, um... So, you know, I was deemed a rather edgy character, but still one who could be allowed into polite society. But that all changed in 2005 when they started calling me a conspiracy theorist, and that prompted me to research the origins of that phrase. Which I made reference to in two of my substacks. I was so pleased when you made specific reference to CIA memo 1035-960. Yeah, that's right. That's where it comes from. So I've made reference to that thanks to your work. And uh, I'd love for you to get into that in terms of the history of that phrase a little bit and how that phrase is playing out in modern society. And I also want to quickly point out in this very uh, disingenuous fact-checking game that's going on these days. One thing I think I've noticed is if you look up, I think maybe, I forget how you phrase it, but I remember looking up conspiracy theory or the origin of conspiracy theory and one of these fact-check services popping up saying, no, it wasn't invented because of the CIA memo. It had been traced back to previous centuries. Uh, misinformation. Right. It's like, no, no, no. We didn't say it was invented then. We say it was thrust into use in a different manner at that yeah, historical right. juncture. So please, that's one of the keys in the in the whole fact-checking game, I noticed, is intentionally asking the wrong question to intentionally yeah, yeah, get the wrong answer. Yeah, it's, it's a great trick, and it's one that's, you know, been played for a long time. Uh, well, yeah, I, you know, having... Uh, dive deep into this. I, I can speak about it with some, you know, specificity. Absolutely. Um, the, the phrase conspiracy theory was indeed used from time to time by American journalists as early as the 19th century, but in no um, particular way, you know. Um, reporters would refer to a conspiracy theory floated at a trial, for example. You know, conspiracy theory of a crime. It wasn't loaded uh, in a political way the way it came to be. And that that happened in the 60s, uh, in 1967 to be precise, when the CIA took a, a formal step, a covert step, to weaponize the phrase and to get um, uh, media outlets worldwide to use the phrase to discredit uh, those who are questioning the Warren Report. Okay, so the Warren Report 
came out in 64, offering its preposterous explanation of John Kennedy's murder. And that prompted several dogged investigators like Mark Lane and Sylvia Mayer and, and others to uh, study the Warren Report very closely, only to discover the obvious, which is that the executive summary has no basis in the many volumes of evidence that were part of the report. There was no connection Hmm. to this narrative of the lone gunman, uh, who initially was supposed to be communist-connected, but they backed off of that rather quickly because it was too explosive a claim. It it could have led to war with the Soviet Union. So they revised it rather quickly uh, so that Lee Harvey Oswald was not a Marxist Leninist crank, but just a misfit who craved attention. Yeah. Uh, Who said he was just a patsy. (laughs) Right. He said he was a patsy. He was a patsy. Anyway, the interesting thing about this is that just, you know, within a few years of the assassination, these um, investigators succeeded through various local appearances, giving talks on campuses and so on. They succeeded in um, moving a significant number, uh, a significant percentage of the American people into doubting the official story. I mean, it really did get some traction. And, and even though the memo does not mention him, uh, Jim Garrison, you know, the district attorney in um, New Orleans, had his own investigation going, his own case against Clay Shaw. Uh, that, too, had to be on the CIA's collective mind. So some officer... I used to know his name, or the name that's on the memo, wrote this, uh, I guess you could say, fatal directive, uh, urging all the CIA station chiefs worldwide to use their propaganda assets and friends in the media to discredit the work of these conspiracy theorists in the, the phrase... That phrase, too, appears in the memo, and it recommended a number of uh, what we would call talking points to strengthen the case against these people. So um, conspiracy theory was indeed used prior to the assassination, but only now and then, and in no particular way. Right. Conspiracy theorists had actually never been used by any journalists, you know, as if it were a vocation or something. Hmm. That they did invent. But now we started to see conspiracy theory always used in the same way, right. uh, as well as used more often. And, and the way in which it was used was to dismiss uh, accusations or suggestions of... Um, some kind of high state crime against democracy. Yeah. And that notion comes from this book that I'm sure you know, Conspiracy Theory in America by Lance DeHaven Smith, which is a book that I, I asked him to write 
sort of series I was editing at the University of Texas Press. I think it was 2013 that it came out. Mm. Still in print. It's an indispensable book. Uh, Lance was, you know, an ally in the election integrity movement and not a partisan. Right. You know, just a man of principle. And I happened on a little essay he wrote about that phrase, which I had already investigated myself, you know, finding from the online archives of the New York Times and the Washington Post and Time Magazine that the phrase was rarely used until 1967. That was my discovery. Right. He made that discovery independently, wrote this essay, and I urged him to write a book, which, you know, is still selling. It's a book that really should be taught in every school uh, because it's such a wildly successful propaganda drive, you know, that it basically came from the mind of the CIA and has ended up on the lips of just about everybody. You know, people are always calling this or that a conspiracy theory. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, as opposed to, I guess, a coincidence or something like that. Yeah. But it, it, it's, um, as I say, as more and more people have become distrustful of the official story, distrustful of the government and distrustful of the, of the media, the attack on those who suggest a counter narrative has become more virulent yeah. and more uh, fascistic. Yeah. I mean, call it what it is. Yeah. I mean, th th we saw this coming, or some of us did, when they kidnapped Julian Assange, right? Mm -hmm. And this guy's been living under torturous conditions for years, mm -hmm. and nobody can even explain why. You know, I mean, it was prompted by this bogus rape accusation in Sweden, yeah. which in Sweden quickly fell apart. There was nothing to it. Mm -hmm. uh, but that fact disappeared into the background and um, now all we know is that Julian Assange is locked up. You know, God knows what they've done to him. And for what? What did he do? He, with Wikipedia, you know, he cast a shadow on various propaganda drives Wikileaks, and on various right? powerful players like Hillary Clinton. And you don't do that, you know. That's just not allowed. If this were a real democracy which abided by the First Amendment, the spirit of the First Amendment, it would be allowed, it would be encouraged. Absolutely. But it's not allowed. So, you know, what, what happened to Julian Assange then happened to hundreds of Americans after January 6th. And I saw the other day a piece um, claiming, I think it was in Epoch Times, that DOJ is planning to sweep up a, you know, thousands more in the wake of January 6th, right? Which was like three years ago by now. Um, it's, it's really crazy, but it shows that the, you know, the attack on me and my friends in that election integrity movement was, was simply going to intensify and grow as more and more official narratives 
persuaded fewer and fewer people. Yeah. See? So there were the assassinations in the 60s. Then there was, you know, the October surprise that put Reagan in the White House. Uh, some discovered that a similar um, ruse had put Nixon in the White House in 1968. You know, he persuaded the government of South Vietnam not to settle at the peace talks, promising them a better deal should he become president. So LBJ was unable to end the war, and Nixon um, prevailed, you know, conspiracy theory. Aspects of Iran-Contra were conspiracy theory. And then, of course, 9-11 was sort of the, um, the big one, you know, um, the mother of all conspiracy theories. And since then, um, over the last four years, it's just become crazy, you know. The media is now unanimously committed to narratives that bear no relation to reality. So, naturally, um, you know, more and more Americans are leery of what they're told, and the the, the most frequent way in which they are, um, you know, uh, vilified is to identify them with the far right. Yeah. So basically what, what we've seen is, is a, a, a bizarre reversal, you know, back in the forties and fifties into the sixties. If you doubted the official narrative, you were a communist or you were communist affiliated. And indeed in the CIA memo, they actually suggest identifying the conspiracy theorists with communism. Now it's the opposite. You know, now it's um, the villainous um, proponents of conspiracy theories are all on the far right, you know. Right. Um, so, uh, that's a strange change, you know, and it and it's continuous with the. Well, there's a lot of cr- crisscrossing going on that I've noticed, right? Like the obvious one, for example, is my body, my choice. Except well, yeah, when it absolutely. pertains to experimental. Jeremiah, I, I, I have to take this quick call. I'll okay, go ahead. I'm going to read something from my Substack. As a matter of fact, that I just pulled okay. up. So go ahead, and and we'll get back to you in a second. Um, check this out. By the way, guys, we have an incredible guest coming out up um, on. I'm not sure the date without my calendar open, but um, in a couple weeks, in a few weeks, we're going to have Ivor Cummins, who I don't know if you've checked him out. He was phenomenal throughout COVID. He's a data guy. He's a science guy. He's an ultra rationalist is how I would describe him. Just very clear presentation of information. And he shared a clip, a little excerpt from my Substack on Twitter which appeared to be shadow banned, like everything that I'm associated with. I think I'm the most shadow banned person with less than a thousand followers in the history of Twitter. That's my claim. Now I have over a thousand followers. I've just broke that mark. I have 1,100 followers, which isn't many, but I had the honor of Ivor Cummins sharing an excerpt from my Substack, and I want to read the 
little bit that um, that he shared because I was like, hey, that's pretty good writing if I do say so myself. I think it's pretty cool. And what he shared was this clip right here from my article called Conspiracy Theory. You're misusing the term. During the ongoing period of COVID hysteria and propaganda, or sorry, pardon me, let's start over. During the ongoing period of COVID hysteria and the propaganda onslaught that accompanied it, there were several articles and news items making reference to dangerous conspiracy theories. I would like to challenge the notion that conspiracy theories are particularly harmful. I think it's a disingenuous claim. I don't buy it. If someone says kooky, spooky, whacked out stuff, what exactly does that add to or subtract from your life? If someone makes a preposterous suggestion, are you compelled to abide by it? If you are, it seems to me your compulsion to do so is more of a problem than the random preposterous suggestion. As opposed to the notion of the so-called dangerous conspiracy theory, I suggest it's far more dangerous to be so naive as to think people are not conspiring. It's more dangerous to trust the government. It's more dangerous to trust transnational corporations. It's more dangerous to trust captured agencies like the FDA and CDC. In fairness, I would like to quickly address the potential drawbacks of the conspiratorial mindset. There is a certain type of mind that is constantly looking for mystical, supernatural, extraterrestrial explanations. This type of mind finds itself insufficiently entertained by ordinary information and therefore gravitates towards the fantastic and fantastical explanations. I do not believe this is a proper orientation towards the world. The basic functionality of things must always be understood as well as possible. The inexorable elements of politics, economics, and human psychology are always at play. As in any discipline, our ascertainment of history should be based on solid fundamentals and guiding principles, not sketchy stuff. Yet despite the drawbacks of the aforementioned mindset, the conspiracy theorist, even if they overshoot the target or go a little far afield, is more well-suited for survival by virtue of their more than justified paranoia than the person pretending unrealistically that we have achieved equality, rationality, equanimity, safety, and a corruption-free environment when in fact those things have not been achieved. So that's an excerpt from my uh, conspiracy theory. You're misusing the term. I wrote uh, also another article called Conspiracy Theory. What do you mean? And that came from when I would point out certain things about what was going on. People say, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. And I'd scratch my head and say, well, what's the theory? I didn't postulate a theory. I've just made reference to particular things that are factually true. So it's interesting how eager people are to use that term at this point. But I would also like to get right into uh, Professor Miller, if you're back. I want to talk. I'm back. About, yes, excellent. I would love to talk about your outstanding substack. I think you have a really important substack. And uh, I have to commend you because the dissident doctors are pretty numerous, I would say. While maybe they might seem smaller in total than the medical establishment, which is just this huge amorphous blob. There are thousands and thousands of doctors who have spoken out. They even have conferences. I don't see the same thing happening in academia. You sound, no. you seem to me like still more of a lone wolf. So I really commend you for that. And uh, you have this incredible series that you do, a, a heart-wrenching series in memory of those who died suddenly. And you're just compiling these unbelievable 
instances of people dying, people being sick at an unusual rate. Now, people might say this is anecdotal, but um, don't fall into that trap because anecdotal is the basis for what then becomes research science. Like we have to just notice what's going on around us, first of all, right? Like I wouldn't right, think right. that it's fair to say, oh, it's intelligent to ignore what's happening in your environment. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Well, it, it occurred. This was in um, uh, February of uh, 2022. We started doing this. Um, and the idea came from um, my friend Celia Farber, who spoke of the need for a series um, that would track reports of people dying suddenly. Right. And I, um, she was otherwise engaged, so I ran with this idea, which struck me as essential because, you know, statistics don't have any emotional poignancy. Great. You know, you can say a million or two million or six million, you know, as Stalin said infamously, right. <laughs> and yet correctly, you know, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Yeah. So there's no way to relate to these people. These are people, you know, fellow human beings who had died, and they represent every tribe, you know. Some of them are woke, some of them are on the right. They're every age, every sex. Um, you know, you, you've got to put a name and, if possible, a face to these people. It also demonstrates, you know, to show their faces demonstrates how heartbreakingly young so many of them are. And then to read that, you know, this kid died of cardiac arrest or of a stroke mm -hmm. at three years old. Oh. It is, you know, anecdotal it may be, but um, it is extremely telling. And if you if you are blissfully ignorant of the history of obituary practice, it's easier for you to laugh it off. Right. But the fact is that certainly in the United States and elsewhere, it has always been the custom to explain what it was that killed this person. Even very old people. Right. Um, like when Jerry Lewis died, I think he was 93. Hmm. The coverage noted the various ailments that had, you know, combined to kill him. Yeah. And certainly when you're dealing with younger people passing, it was always an explanation because it's the first thing you ask yourself when right. you hear that a, you know, a 25 year old died. Yeah. What, what, what happened? What did it? Yeah. Well, for the first time in, in the history of obituaries in this country and other countries, we have no cause of death. Hmm. Um, you know, either the article will say, you know, um, we, 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 we know of, you know, no cause of death has been released as yet, or they just don't say anything at all. They just say this person died. Now and then they'll even say they died of natural causes, like Sinead O'Connor, we're told now, died of natural causes. Well, she of was too young to die of natural yeah, causes. 56 years and old. possibly have been natural causes. At any rate, this kind of, um, this work, this project basically accomplishes two things or so I hope 
and I, I can't take all the credit for it because we have a sizable network of researchers, you know, worldwide who are helping us doggedly. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, we want to call attention to the toll that the press has, has censored in order to help move people not to get that next shot. And I'd like to think that the really low uptake of vaccines now, like in September, only 3% of eligible adults had, had gotten jabbed again. That's very low. I mean, that's cause for a grave concern. At well, I love the way you days. phrased it in a previous interview that you said something to the effect of, uh, they, they, they've woken up, but they won't admit it, which is kind of a well, funny concept. You know, normally yeah, you'd well, be excited to be woken up about something, but in this case, it's like, right. no, keep it a secret. Don't let them know that we've woken up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we want, we want to dissuade people from getting jabbed. And, and I'm, I, I like to think that we, we've helped with that. And it's also extremely illuminating in terms of propaganda study to see how the press uh, is trying to normalize this astounding die-off, you know. Right. I mean, it's amazing what, what, what they will Oh, my goodness, say or the headlines. With a straight face, yeah. Right. So the funniest one, I, and I'm sorry, it's, none of this is funny, but the most absurd was, I don't know if you saw the headline, Winter Vagina Might Be Killing Women. Uh, you know, you, your vagina gets cold, and then you get a heart attack. <laughs> uh, I saw you sent me that in an email, and I had never seen that before. Um, that's a good one. You know, I mean, Winter but they think, oh, oh, you can, you can, you, people are dying of heart attacks mowing their lawn. Don't mow your lawn too hard. Uh, you right. know, oh, exercise is bad for your heart. New discovery. No, it's not. <laughs> exercise oh, is the yeah. best thing for your heart before we started doing this weird stuff that we started doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, there's, you know, um, there's uh, extreme uh, sadness, or heartbreak syndrome, they call it. And then, of course, there's extreme happiness. Oh, I mean, right, right. They, they, right. A guy, he was cl- crying tears of joy because he, he had gotten a perfect score on his examination and then keeled over and, and died. And he dropped dead, right? <laughs> he died he from joy. He was successful for his own good, you know. I mean, these are really uh, desperate attempts to cover this up. I mean, I, I, you know, I do believe in instincts, folks. Like, I, I believe in technical knowledge. I believe in expertise. I'm not someone who just shuns expertise and shuns. Like, for example, I'm an amateur historian in my own right. I, I like to read. I like to think about things. Professor Mark Crispin Miller, he's, he's a professional historian. He's a professional academic. I don't make light of that. Like, I really cherish the ability to speak with someone who's, who's dedicated to this work and does it on a professional basis. There, there are levels to the game, as they say. Um, mm. So, you know, but at the same time, I do believe in common sense, so to speak. And like they say, common sense is not so common. I do believe in... Actually, you know what? The most simple form of that phrase is just called having some damn sense. You know, oh, come yeah. on, folks, please have some damn sense. You know, if things are weird, they might be weird. You know, let's stop pretending that extremely normal stuff is weird. Like, it's weird if you don't have a face mask on. 
No, that's not yeah. weird. That's called the normal human face before well, you dumped right. reality on its head. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this your observation um, calls to mind the fact that, oddly enough, um, it tends to be the more educated who fall hardest for these narratives. Right. They're the most vested in the system, first of all. Right. They're the most vested in the system. Uh, so the higher up the social ladder you you uh, climb, you know, the more important it is to you that the New York Times uh, is is gospel truth and NPR is gospel truth. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, back when he was lucid, Noam Chomsky um, made that point in the responsibilities of the intellectual in early book mm-hmm. that it was the educated who. Uh, were the most susceptible to propaganda, you know, whereas people who uh, operate closer to the ground have their feet on the ground and do real labor, um, you know, they they tend to be less uh, likely to fall for these stories that come down from on high. Right. You know? Well, and, uh, and, and under the Nazis, too, it, um, if, you know, I, I reread um, um, Victor Klemperer's great diary, uh, three-volume diary he kept. Mm. He was um, a born Jewish, but he converted to, um, he became a Protestant and had an Aryan wife. They, they lived in Dresden. Wow. And they made it through the war, and they even made it through the firebombing of Dresden. Hmm. Uh, this is probably the greatest of the diaries kept in that period. And I reread it because in 2020, because even though it was extremely dark material, it it reaffirmed the fact that you we can survive the worst things, you know? Right. Well, anyway, one of the observations he makes several times in this diary is that the educated that he encountered tended to be the ones who were readiest to parrot the party line on the Jews. Right. They tended to be the most hostile. Hmm. Whereas working people weren't, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think it's only in this country. I, I do think there's a sociological constant here. Hmm. As you say, those who are invested in the system uh, tend to treat the official narrative with some reverence. Right, they hunker down and they really They hunker it. down and they become angry at those who uh, deny it, you know? Right. And now, I mean, I, I just can't believe the ferocity with which dissidents across the board are treated, you yeah, know? Yeah, right, it's unbelievable. The point that, you know, the, um, the First Amendment is... Is practically a dead letter, you know. Oh yeah, seriously. I it's mean, really alarming. There's a couple things I would love. We're unfortunately running out of time. I'm I'm dreading the clock right now because there's so many things I'd ah. like to discuss with you. But, um, you know, one story I wanted to convey really quickly, which to me kind of symbolizes a lot of where we are still, is, you know, I'm a musician and uh, I definitely took some heat for for my stance against the mandates. Musicians, unfortunately, were were very eager for the sellout in a lot of cases and very few people spoke out. I was a persona non grata 
amongst a lot of groups. I've, I've got kicked out of the hardcore scene, out of the punk rock scene of all things. It's like, oh, yeah, the anarchists who you right. know insist that you take mandated experimental drugs to, to be part of the anarchy. Yeah, I mean, I do, don't do, understand. Do you, know, uh, do you know Joe Arthur? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. Oh, check him, Joseph Arthur. Check him out. I will. He he uh, was thrown out of his band, um, you know, in a, a upstate. New, I think it was in upstate New York. Um, you know, he was very very vocal yeah. uh, about the necessity of free choice and so on. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's so many uh, stories. And he about was. It. He, he, what's that? I said there's so many stories about it. Dave Grohl's drummer. Uh, was forced oh, yeah. by David yeah, Grohl yeah. to take the shot and and died. You know, another died suddenly. Very young man, talented young man. They tried to bring drugs into the explanation. No, he'd been clean for many years. He wasn't abusing yeah. drugs, but that was a convenient excuse that you could pin on a musician. Well, you know, you've probably noticed this. Among the, 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 the many oddities that we've turned up in doing these compilations, the fact that it isn't only countless musicians who have drop dead sometimes on stage right yep but there seems to be an inordinate number of bassists and drummers who who have died suddenly right. um the rhythm section by the way yeah. when i i put died suddenly in quotation marks they, they include people who you know have die of some so-called rare aggressive cancer right you know they die like three weeks after they're diagnosed so we include those in sudden death so look strictly speaking they're not sudden but it it it, it is a euphemism right. you know right sure absolutely but i was going to say right. that there's a musician friend of mine i'm certainly not going to mention his name because that's not important but um uh he has he shares the same birthday as me we're both new year's babies and i huh. wished him happy birthday just said happy birthday and he liked, it was on social media, he liked the comment, but didn't have the courtesy to say, same to you. And I just huh. found that interesting. It's like, yeah, that's kind of where we stand. Like, wait, are you still like pissy at me? Because I didn't take an injection a few years ago. That you, guys, told. you guys fell out over that? Um, he was, we, we didn't argue. He was getting upset at some of the things I was posting. I think he just, you know, he kind of written me off. We didn't have a big face to face showdown about it or anything, but this is someone who I perform with in different countries. I've recorded right. him in my home. He's, he was on, uh, on a couple of albums that I produced. He's involved with stuff that I've worked with intimately. And we played in a band together that performed all around the country, performed in different countries. And, you know, Hey, honestly, I, I have two young children to feed. So one of the beautiful things about that is if you're not involved with the project of raising and feeding my kids, I'm not that concerned actually about anybody's pissy attitude or anything. Everyone can go about their business as they please at this point, honestly. But it's just yeah. really interesting to me that, wow, dude, you think that you're the noble one here, but I'm the one who <laughs> just wished you happy birthday and you didn't have the courtesy to do the same. So what what construct have you made in your mind where you're the good guy and that's how things play out? But I yeah, wanted yeah. to say quickly, that was just a little personal anecdote I wanted to get off my chest, but I wanted to say back to some of the stuff that we were talking about, I, I find it striking, and I would love to hear your comments about this in terms of um, the the laptop liberals, the, uh, the, the leftists with uncalloused hands, as I'd like to describe them, they're automatically labeling, for example, the Canadian truckers, right wing, um, whatever 
conversation there is, and there's not nearly enough conversation about the protests going on led by farmers in Germany. Oh, they're right-wing farmers. Yeah, it's like, sorry, farmers. guys, um, those are the workers. So, you exactly. know, you claim you had a working-class movement. It's not up to you to determine that, oh, someone is not, you know, fitting this little uh, description that we've defined for people. You have to, you know, like you said very humorously the other day, I, I, I've been really amused uh, when you said, um, you know, people who dye their hair yellow and blue and are all the while belly aching over white supremacy. You know, <laughs> I've been really tickled. That, that really tickled me when you said that. Um, yeah. But it's like, what do you say about a left? And we just have a minute here, basically, unfortunately, we have like two minutes. But can you give us two minutes about this left that that resents people who have calluses on their hands? Well, yeah, they, they, they hate the working class, you know. It, it's all been obfuscated by their obsession with race. You know, they're all for black people in a very patriotic Except for black way. people who don't want to take experimental vaccines, but yeah. Well, that's right. They're, they're all for black people who share their views, right? Right. <laughs> but as far as um, the white working class goes, it's just another example of how the left, that's in scare quotes, Right. You know, in the 2020s is eerily similar to the right in 1953. Right. Right. I mean, they hate Russia. Mm. Right. They're pro-war. They worship the intelligence agencies. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, they're all for censorship. Um, you know, we, we, we could go on and on. And then, you know, uh, that gets into the question and we won't have time to sort this out. I was kind of hoping we would, but we won't. Which is, so then, do we change the definition of left, or do we do what I've been trying to do, which is just try to say, no, well, you're not left. Sorry, you might claim you're left, but what you're doing has nothing to do with the meaningful pe values of the people's movement that we No, that's absolutely right. And, and, and we need also to kind of straighten out a lot of people on the right who continue to use the word communist oh, exactly. as, as a cudgel. I, you I know. call that it's, the it's, cartoonish it's, concept of history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I, I mean, say? It's like if Joe are... Biden is a communist, where's my health care? You know, where's my, <laughs> where's my guarantee of, of housing? Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's insane. Um, you know, there. I mean, this requires a much longer conversation. But Absolutely. Well, I hope we can we, have, a, have that longer conversation soon. I hope we can continue this dialogue, Professor. Well, let's do it. I'm... Uh, you know, drilling for oil in the apartment next door. Yeah. I, you know, well, don't I, have to keep. Yeah, let's talk soon. And um, I, I would love to introduce you to some of the people that I've met because I, I have some new allies. I've been connecting with people. I would really love for you to address. I've been becoming friends with uh, people who are vaccine injured. There's a really oh, yeah. powerful movement of people of, of the vaccine injured who have connected. And um, I would love to connect you with that community and some of the medical freedom people I've come across who would really cherish your insight. Okay, let's do it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Mark Crispin Miller. It's really an incredible honor to have you on this program. And um, definitely stay in touch and keep up all the great work. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Jeremiah. It was a pleasure.